Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, Sunday, November the 14th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's been a, a, a good week here. The, we've had some weird up and down kind of weather. It was cold last weekend, then it got warm midweek, and just kind of went back and forth. It seems like we we're, we're, uh, had a, a cold weekend now, too. So anyway, it's just been that kind of week. I want to say thanks and give a shout out to all uh, my friends and all those who are listening who might be veterans. I know it's three days post-Veterans Day, but still, um, I value that greatly. I've got a lot of good friends who are in uh, either active duty or who are uh, retired military, and, and I'm very grateful for the service that they've provided our country to um, make sure that we have had our liberties safeguarded to this point. So I'm very thankful for them, and so want to thank them for uh, their sacrifice. But the, the other a group of people that I want to thank particularly are the wives of those who have served because it's military uh, life is a difficult life. It's a difficult life for, for the spouses as well because, the, you know, especially over the last, what, 20 years since we got involved in the um, messes that we got involved in in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places where um, families were separated for long periods of time and now have looked up over the last several months and said, well, for what? Uh, as we watch the events unfold in Afghanistan and the mess that we left behind in Iraq a few years ago. And so, as you can tell, I've got some opinions. <laughs> but anyway, that, that it, it's, it, it's been a rough ride for a, a lot of military families, and I just want to say thank you for those families. It's, uh, they deserve our gratitude. So anyway, we've um, not been doing too much around here. There's nothing exciting or new particularly going on. Um, just sort of rocking through life and, and, and moving on. So it's been a good week, a quiet week. I've enjoyed uh, having the Wednesday night things that we've had uh, where I've been working through the book of Ruth, and there should be some podcast. I'm probably going to do those in video form um, that, that'll come out here right after the first of the year. I'll start working on those. Right now I'm just gathering some people. If you live in the area, by the way, and you hear this and you'd like to be part of it, it's we're gathering at our house at 6.30 on Wednesday every other week. It's not every week. It's every other week. And so if you'd like to come be part of that, then just uh, shoot me a, an email or a Facebook message or whatever and let me know, and, and we'd be happy to have you. So we're just, like I said, we're just working through the book of Ruth, and I'm doing some um, some messing around with uh, sort of the Jewish sources and some of the, uh, the Midrashic sources and the Talmudic sources to look at the impact of the book of Ruth and, and its a powerful thing because you've what you've got is somebody who is uh, the the grandmother of King well not the great great grandmother of David, the king who is from whom the messianic line comes and so we're spending some time looking at that and looking at the other sources that have to do with conversion and as we go along through it one of the things that that you can see is is that the book of Ruth had a powerful had and has a powerful impact on uh, Judaism. Uh, because she is sort of the outcast, uh, the Moabite woman who is uh, from a tribe that they're not supposed to intermarry with. And there's more to it than that, but it's it's a prohibition, in scriptural prohibition, actually, against it. And so there's been a, there, there's a lot involved in the book of Ruth that has a lot to do with us today, and it has a lot to do with what it means to be a disciple and how it means 
what it has to say about how we relate to the Lord, and it has to do with trust, it has to do with sovereignty, it has to do with faith. And so we're, we've been looking at that uh, just for a couple of weeks now, and um, we're meeting again next, there's a Wednesday coming up in, in three days. So anyway, the, the other book that we're going to look at a little bit today is from 1 Samuel. We're going to look at the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel himself. And so we're going to take a look at that uh, in 1 Samuel 1, 4 to 20. And then um, the gospel is uh, Mark 13, 1 to 8. And then the epistle is Hebrews 10, 11 to 25. The three of these, each one of them could have a, a forever kind of a, a look at them. Uh, but so we're going to try and get this done, though, in, in the normal time that I take to do these things, or some somewhere around there. So in, in the first Samuel lesson, let's get started. On the day when Elkanah, who would be the the husband of Hannah, the father ultimately of Sa- uh, the prophet Samuel, when he on a day when he sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. So everybody got a portion of the sacrifice. And then it says, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. The Lord had closed her womb and the rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And and so immediately we've got a conundrum, right? So he gave portions to Peninnah, his wife and her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion. So we for whatever reason, this passage didn't begin with verse 1, and you might not know that Hannah is actually a wife of Elkanah too. And so the question might be, well, how in the world did this man end up with two wives, and why is that okay? And the answer to that is that there, there was a law because the first commandment was to be fruitful and multiply, period, end of sentence. So it was incumbent on Jewish men to do two things. One is to get married, and the second was to have children. And so because those two commandments had to be obeyed, then there had to be a provision somewhere that said, well, what if over some period of time they don't conceive? And so the provision was if, if a woman was unable to conceive— and the presumption was it was her fault, by the way, that in, within the first 10 years of marriage, then, then the husband could take a second wife in order to fulfill that commandment because it was a commandment. You understand the nature of a commandment, right, that it was something that had to be done. So it, it, in order to obey that, then he could take a second wife. And Jewish sources tell us that she, Hannah, actually went out and found this one for him. Um, but that is not in the scriptures. But anyway, so what we get is that that we've, we've got a barren woman, and that barren woman's name is Hannah. The, the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we, we've looked at other passages before, well, like Job, for instance, <laughs> and we've also looked at the man born blind in John 9, and then there are certainly other passages, including uh, patriarchs, right? Because um, Sarah wasn't able to have children for about 25 years. Rachel uh, was about 20 years. And in both cases, what happened was those two women said, I can't have children with you. Let's introduce someone else into this situation and see if they can have children. So in Sarah's case, she brings her maid Hagar. And then in Rachel's case, she brings her maid Bilhah and and said, they can have children for us. And so we see that that, uh, pattern before among the patriarchs and here we see it with with Hannah 
and so there's a there's another wife, and that wife has been very fruitful, but Hannah's womb was closed, and so the question can become, well, is it because there was some defect, either physical or spiritual, in Hannah? And, and there's no indication in the text that that's the case, that it's some problem or defect in Hannah that's the problem, just like there wasn't a, a defect noted in either Rachel or Sarah. And then we or in the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, who was beyond childbearing age as well, or in the case of Samson's mother, all of whom were beyond childbearing years, and then whose womb had been closed until it was to be opened at a certain time. Typically, when that happens in Scripture, what we see is, is that something extraordinary will come of that once the womb is opened. And it's God's work to open the womb. The closing of the womb is not necessarily judgment in any shape, form, or fashion on the woman. There's other work being done. And I think one of the things that we need to understand in the world and in our lives is is that our difficulties are not necessarily the result of our sin. It's the first thing that we're going to go to because we have sin in our lives and we recognize that. But the reality is is, is that sometimes what, what would be helpful would be for God to hang a big sign around our necks that said, under construction. Because we're waiting for something to happen, and we're waiting for God to do something. We've done what we think is everything we can possibly do, but nothing is happening. Nothing is being achieved by our efforts. And so what we need is that big sign, and that way we could, it, would, it would give us some comfort to know that we were under construction, that God was doing something in our lives that was actually more important than the thing we had been praying for or working for. And, and that, I think is one of the the hardest things in the life of a Christian, is to know that God's put a desire in your heart and to believe that, that this is God's thing, and yet somehow this is not, no matter what I do, it's not coming about. And it's beyond easy to get frustrated with that. I've been there, done that. I know exactly what that looks like. Been been frustrated with, uh, I was ready to go somewhere, and then I had to wait, ready to, I mean, in, in ministry, I mean. And, and then God, suddenly, things come forth, and something new and wonderful comes forth. But the problem becomes is that, that in our own lives, man, it becomes a, a real burden. But if we knew and believed that we were under construction, that God was doing something important, more important in our lives than that thing, then maybe, I don't know, maybe, I doubt it, maybe a little bit, we would be able to say, well, okay, um, then I'll be patient. Nah, probably not. But other people would at least know that we weren't under some sort of judgment if we did that. But but it's, it's difficult. And here, it's, it's a matter of fulfilling a commandment where this is going to be delayed. Now, to Hannah, he gives a double portion. So he gives a portion to, to Peninnah and all of her children, and then he gives twice as much to Hannah because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. All right, so you get it? The Lord has closed her womb. So the rival is Peninnah. And so, you know, you can see it. You can imagine exactly what that looks like, you know, sort of this, this side glance or the eye roll, or whatever, because she probably believed that she was blessed and favored by the Lord, but she also felt, well, my husband loves her. I mean, you see the same rivalry between Rachel and Leah, and so you see the same rivalry that developed between Hagar and, uh, and Sarah, and that's the reason that Sarah put her away, 
and had uh, Abraham put her away. So you can see and imagine what that would be like. They both got a rub, right? So the, the rub for Hannah's side is, is just that my rival wife is being blessed with these children, and the other woman's problem is my husband loves that cursed woman, the one whose womb is closed more than he loves me, who's provided him with all these children. And so you can imagine the provocation that would be there in that. So it went on year by year. This is not good, right? It goes on year by year. Jewish sages teach that it was in like 19 years. And they teach that Rachel's womb had been closed for 20 years, and Sarah, we know, was closed for 25 years. And so they, Hannah is elevated, ultimately, in Jewish history to near-rival status with those two uh, mothers of the patriarchs because they, she didn't have to wait quite as long, but they see this same process going on, and there's a comparison between them there. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Uh, why? Why at the house of the Lord? And it would be because that would be the place where, where her pain would be the most difficult because the Lord had closed her womb. And so, therefore, when they were there, Hannah wept and would not eat while they were there. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? I mean, listen to these questions, right? Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I mean, if, if I were counseling, I would probably just have to look at the guy and go, dude, mm -mm, nope, 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 nope. Don't ask those questions. You know the answer to all those questions. And you know that the answer is, no, you're not more to her than ten sons. Because it, it reflects badly on her. It, it looks like that she is somehow a bad woman in the eyes of the Lord. And people will judge her for this. And Peninnah is judging her for this. And, and so the answer to all those questions is, is, you're lucky she didn't smack you for that. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle had been set up before the temple was built, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now, Eli, his problem ultimately is he, he saw what his boys, who were to be his successors, were doing, and, and they were sleeping with women around the temple, and they were also treating the sacrifices that were brought with disdain. They, they were bad priests, and Eli saw this and allowed it. That's the reason God came and judged Eli. So here, though, he's very attentive, right? So he's sitting there, and she was deeply distressed and played, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So I will give him back to you. Even though he's not in the priestly line, I'm going to give him back to you if you will give me a son. She wasn't praying for a child. She was praying for a son specifically, and said, I'll give him to you, and then also he'll be under a Nazarite vow, which is the vow that Samson was under, and also the vow that John the Baptist had taken. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. So he's intently looking at this woman's mouth. She's crying. She's really obviously upset. And she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman because at the time you prayed out loud, you didn't do what Hannah was doing. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. What she did was she she didn't answer her husband and complain against the Lord to her husband and his questioning. No, she went directly to him. And that is the difference between murmuring and prayer. <laughs> because she, her complaint was not against her husband. It was against the Lord who had closed her womb, and so she went directly to him with it. The problem that, that you had in the wilderness was is that they were complaining about the Lord to one another, and they weren't going to him and asking him the, the, the answer to this. They were looking among other humans for that problem, and, and that's the issue, and that, that's something we need to be careful about always. We need to not blame others. We need to not blame the Lord by talking to others. We need to go to him because he's the source of all things. Our faith and our trust should be entirely in him. And Psalm 110 tells us that over and over again. Put not your trust in princes and rulers. And so here she does exactly the right thing. She goes to the temple and she goes before the Lord with her problem. And Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. There was an old tradition, let's say, among the priests in Israel, that if one of them falsely accused someone, and this would probably have held true for everybody, not just the priests, but specifically with the priest, if they found someone guilty of something wrongly, if they falsely accused you, then not only were they obliged to say, I'm sorry, and acknowledge the wrong, they were also obliged to bless you. And so that's the pattern that you see here. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Why? She believed. She believed that the Lord had heard her, and that somehow through the mouth of this priest, Eli, he had communicated to her in such a way that she believed that his will would be done. And so now she went from being a woman who couldn't eat and cried all the time to being a woman who now goes and eats, and her face was no longer sad. She believed the Lord had spoken through Eli at that time. He had heard her, he had remembered her, and he had answered her prayer. And then they rose, they, the family, rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, he had sex with her, and the Lord remembered her. And it's the same thing that you see in Exodus, right? That, that the Lord remembered his people, and he remembered his promises to them. And so he blessed them, and he brought them out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And here's the same thing. The Lord remembered her, tells you she got pregnant. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked him from the Lord. And so the principles in this are that that. Sometimes we outsiders need to be careful not to judge people who are going through difficult times because we don't know what the Lord's doing. We, on, as the people who are going through difficult times, need to persevere in prayer and need to trust in the Lord. That if he has said something, he will do it and he will perform it. But it'll be in his time and in his way. And that's exactly what happened here. And for whatever reason, the key seems to have been that, that she said, I will give him to you. I don't want him for me. I just want him. I want to have a child so that the reproach is rolled off of me. So that people no longer look at me the way they look at me now. They don't treat me the way they do. 
that, that I become somebody who is vindicated in the eyes of the Lord because I have a child. I don't want the child just to have a child. I want it for vindication purposes, and I will give him to you. And so that vow, then she has to fulfill it. Her, her husband could have annulled it as soon as she, he found out about it, but he didn't. And so she wanted it for the right reason and in the right way. She agreed with the Lord on what his will was for all of that. In the gospel lesson, I mean, th- this is one of those things, you, you read the first part of this, and if you're familiar with the, with the word, with the gospel, you read the first part of this. As they, they came out of the temple, Jesus is there. This is the last week of his life. He has just been pronouncing woes to the scribes and the Pharisees and all this. There's been a lot of conflict going on. He's told all these um, parables against them that says that the, as the, the wicked tenants and all that kind of stuff. And so now they come, I don't know if the, what the disciples were thinking thinking, whether they were thinking, oh, this will make things better, you know, let's, let's divert the conversation. And they came out of the temple. One of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? I mean, he's in his 30s. <laughs> he's been to Jerusalem who knows how many times for the festivals and everything else, and, and now they're, they're trying to redirect the conversation to look at how beautiful the buildings are. And Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? He doesn't deny, right? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Huh, well, that little conversation thing didn't work. Jesus didn't seem to want to change the subject here. He's still talking about judgment. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so they've left, they've gone out to the Mount of Olives where they're staying during the week. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They believe. They believe that Jesus is telling the truth, that these things will. They're they're probably greatly disturbed about that. Because it's the most important thing in Judaism. And Jesus has just said they're not going to last. There's going to come a time when this thing isn't. And they would have thought, assumed, that this would be an eternal thing in spite of the fact that it had already been torn down uh, on other occasions. And it will indeed be torn down in AD 70, so approximately 35 years later. And so they, they want to know. How are we going to know? We'd like to know in advance when that's going to be. And so Jesus answered, right? He says, uh, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I'm he, and they will lead many astray. And we do know that that happened in the decades after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. We know that others came and, and, and tried to claim that they were him. And so he says, don't be led astray by that. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Well, we're probably not going to be because they happen all the time. This must take place, but the end isn't yet. So these things are going to continue to happen. But now the one thing they could latch on to is these people coming in the, and claiming to be Jesus. And then the wars and rumors of war, don't be alarmed by that. And it's one of the things that people still do. <laughs> I hear it all the time, right? I mean, the times we're going through right now, I have people coming to me saying, you think it's the end times? Well, it is. I mean, every moment after Jesus rose is the end times. But no, wars and rumors of war, don't be alarmed. In other words, what he's saying is don't think that's the end time. Don't be deceived and led astray in the same way 
that you would if people came and claimed it was me. This must take place, but the end isn't yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines, and these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Well, ever since then, all those things have been true. Now, later in this same discourse, Jesus is going to give um, some very specific signs, like the abomination of desolation being set up in the place where it shouldn't be, and that happens indeed at the time of the destruction of the temple. They, they desecrate it first, and then they destroy it, and then they rebuild what we know now is the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim temple that's there in the place where the temple was. And so Jesus says, you know, be concerned about these things. So some of this has already been fulfilled, but those are the birth pains. In fact, it says these are the beginning of the birth pains. I don't know, and I don't have an explanation for why Jesus' return has been, has been delayed, and we still have to go through the suffering that we go through in this life. But nonetheless, trust. Have faith in him, because he told us these would be the beginnings of the birth pains. The, the birth pains, the, that only happens when something wonderful is about to come into the world. And so we can't constantly be looking at these things and saying, oh, because this, then this. And, and he, didn't, he never called us to focus on those things. Never. He called us to focus on the mission that he had given us. But but Jesus is clear that judgment is real and that judgment's coming. But my people need to be aware of some things. They need to be aware that you can try and search for signs in the world. You can You can try and read the tea leaves, but you're wasting your time. Stay about the mission that you've been given to do, and you're going to be fine. It doesn't mean there's no place in, in our theology for talking about these things, for talking about the eschatology, because we do need to have eschatological ideas and, and discussions about that. But the reality is, Jesus said, just be about the work that you've been given to do. He, he didn't tell us to spend all our time focusing on this. Man, I, I came out of a, a teaching one time. This is probably 25 years ago, maybe not quite that long, but it's been a long time. I came out, and, and it was it was a good teaching, and I was chatting with this guy that I didn't know. And he, while we're talking, he says he starts talking about all this end-time stuff, and he says, oh, come here, let me show you. And we went out to his car, and he pulled out this insane set of uh, graphs and all this other stuff about end times, and man, he just went on and on and on, and I'm standing there in the parking lot, and all I can think is, man, I just want to go. I hope nobody sees me talking to this guy because he's, well, nuts, because he's obsessed with the wrong thing. And so we can get so caught up in this whole end times thing that, that we can spend all our time and energy doing that rather than being out of being about the work of preaching the gospel in thought, word, and deed. And so... Jesus never gives these sort of very specific kinds of things to be looking for. When he's speaking to his disciples and they're asking him for a sign, he doesn't give them those things that they could hang on to and go, oh, well, that's, see, that's it. Revelation gives us more information about what it's going to look like as we move towards the end, as we move from the beginnings of the birth pains into labor itself. And that's exactly what Revelation is talking about. It's, it's when we, God, basically the earth is in labor to bring forth this new thing. And, and that's exactly what Paul says when he talks to uh, the Romans, when he says that the, the whole earth is groaning in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God. In other words, the, the whole earth is bound up under the sin 
that we we are in, and, and it creation groans for the release of sin, and, and that's only going to come about when you get the revelation of the sons of God, those who are without sin, those who are right and righteous. So that's Jesus gives this kind of nebulous answer to this, but he just he just says, look, this is these things are going to happen. So don't worry about these things. In the epistle, we get a lot of, uh, continuing with some Platonic, Plato um, philosophy here in the, in the understanding of things that, that is the heavenly, uh, the, the heavenly realities are on, uh, what you see on earth is a copy of the heavenly realities. They, it, they are real in a way that these are just a copy of. And so that's exactly, so he's, he's looking at Jesus and comparing him to the priest, comparing the, the throne in heaven to the temple, and saying these things are copies of those. So the, the priesthood on earth is a copy of Jesus' eternal priesthood, and so that's the comparison he's making. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. They, they just make atonement for what's been done. They can't take them away. But when Christ had offered for one time, all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest, it says, stands daily at his service. He can never stop that service because those sacrifices don't do the job. They're a copy of the sacrifice Jesus will make in his flesh. But Jesus, once he's done that work of offering that sacrifice one time, sits down at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus is waiting. Since he made that sacrifice, he's been waiting 2,000 years to see his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What's the footstool of God, by the way? The Ark of the Covenant. That's God's footstool. So here, Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. So the Father has a footstool. Jesus has a footstool. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. What do we also know? It's under the throne of God, the martyrs. They're not the footstool of God. No, the enemies of God are the footstool for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, which is exactly what he said in Jeremiah. <clears throat> then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what he's saying to you today. He remembers your sins and lawless deeds no more. Those things are gone. Where there's forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Jesus, by the way, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. There's no reason for me to make some offering for sin. When I give a tithe to the church, that's not an offering for sin. It's a free will offering, giving the Lord what he has asked me to give. And, and I do it because I love him, and, and I greatly appreciate the fact that everything I have comes from him, and so I give 10% back as a thank offering, not as an offering for sin. That's gone. That's done with. Jesus did the only thing necessary for me to receive forgiveness. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with poor water, pure water. So I want to tell you a little bit what that looks like. So the on the daily prayer service in a Jewish synagogue today, there's a there's a series of prayers. There are 19 petitions in there, and, and it's called the Amida. So in the Amida, it, it's whispered by the congregation. They whisper the petitions and prayers of the Amida in um, to to mimic what Hannah did because the Lord answered her prayer. And so they, they do things exactly the way she did. So she, they, they whisper these things. But before they do that, they, they first take three small steps backward and then three small steps forward. And the reason is that that's to show we, are, we know that we are approaching a king and we do so reverently and with fear. Now, and what he says here, though, in Hebrews is let's draw near with full confidence and a true heart and full assurance of faith. In other words, we don't approach the throne that way because of Jesus. Because of him, everything has changed. We have a full assurance of faith in a way that Hannah didn't until the priest spoke and and blessed her. Before that, she would not raise her voice in petition before the Lord. And so that's exactly what the, the opposite of that is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with confidence draw near. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember who you're asking, the one who promised. <clears throat> and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you think the day is drawing near, what's your response to that? Come before the throne with boldness, and then stir one another up to love and good deeds. Don't neglect to meet together. In other words, continue to worship together. Don't pull out of that. Be part of the community. Be be a vital part of that community and encourage one another. We the Christian community, need to be connected to one another. If we think the day's drawing near, then the thing we need to do is draw close to one another. And that's exactly what we're called to do. We're called to have the faith of Hannah. We're called to have that faith that says, I have a problem and only the Lord can actually answer this. We've tried every other thing. We've tried sex and everything else, and my womb is still closed, but but I'm going to him because he's the one who can take care of this. And, and that's exactly what she did. And then she got the assurance she needed as she came away by this ending up wicked priest, Eli, <laughs> gives her that word. Jesus says, don't spend all your time in fear and being concerned about these things. Don't be led astray. Know the truth. And don't be led astray by the lie. Know that. Stand in the truth and then stand in faith. The faith being the faith in the fullness of the sacrifice of Jesus the resurrection of the dead, which certifies that God accepted his sacrifice and the ascension to heaven, where we know he sits interceding for us as he waits for the fullness of time for all the enemies to be put under his feet. If Jesus can wait 2,000 years, I can wait a little longer for mine to be resolved as well. But the thing to do in the meantime is keep at the work of evangelism and preaching the word and making him known.